Hi, my name is Ian Parry and welcome to What the Future, the podcast which explores what it means to be a future leader. We speak with interesting people about topics that matter. In today's episode, we speak about neurodiverse children from parents from a parent's perspective with Emma Wee and James Miles. Hi both. Hello. Hi. Hello, hello. Really looking forward to this chat today, both. Um, it's a it's a topic that I think lots of people will will want to listen to. Uh, and I know in our sort of run up to, to to this podcast, we've had some really good um, conversations about. I'm just really uh, intrigued as to wh- where this conversation is going to go today. Uh, and I hope that people listening to it will we you know will take some um, take some really positive um, ideas from it. Actually, so. Appreciate you, you both joining me today, and I know that um, you'll add a lot to today's conversation. So just to start us off then, Emma, if you don't mind, um, mm-hmm. can you kind of just sort of um, draw the line on the, the term neurodiverse children and, and what it means? Can you explain that for, for me and others? So neurodiversity is a kind of a, a, a umbrella term um, and was coined by Um, a a really amazing individual called Judy Singer. And it basically covers differently wired brains. So there are different branches of neurodiversity, um, which I'll kind of go through a little bit just to clarify. So when your brains are wiring up as a child, very plastic up to the age of about two, and then they start to hardwire around the age of about seven or eight. And it's around that time that speech and motor function starts to hardwire up. So this is where you'll get the the opportunity to start diagnosing things like dyslexia, dyspraxia, dyscalculia. These all come under the branch of applied neurodiversity and they would go through an educational psychology route and you'll get kind of um, tested on kind of, um, you know, the verbal fluency, spatial reasoning, all of that stuff. Um, and that's the applied neurodiversity. So that's happens around about seven or eight. There's no point diagnosing before that point because those things haven't kind of wired up. Then you've got clinical neurodiversity and that tends to be a medical kind of route. So you'll have things like Tourette's, ADHD, ADD, autism. And because they have more social behavioral markers, they can tend to be diagnosed a little bit earlier from about the age of sort of two, three years old, that those, those, those markers can be kind of seen. And then there's acquired neurodiversity. So this is something that happens to the brain after kind of, I suppose, the kind of genetic makeup, if you like, or kind of what happened, what you're given at, so sort of as part of your kind of um, your heritage or kind of your family kind of history. And this is something that happens to the brain, um, like a brain injury, um, like strokes, um, you know, cerebral palsy, kind of chronic fatigue, all those sorts of things. Um, you know, kind of depression, anxiety is seen as a, as a acquired neurodiversity, for instance. Um, and that can be either transient, so like anxiety can be a transient neurodiversity, or um, chronic or pervasive, like a brain injury. So there are different types of neurodiversity, um, depending on kind of what's going on um, for either you as a child or as, as, as an individual. Um, what's interesting about the way that different conditions are, are, are seen is you know, typically they've all been seen as disabilities. Um, and I think there's a real issue around the pathologizing, I'll say, particularly clinical neurodiversity. Um, my son recently went through his autism assessment and even during the assessment, I sort of 
stopped the woman who was grilling me and I was like really are we still using these really kind of archaic kind of questions like does he talk in a monotone and she was like I'm really sorry I know it's rubbish but this is what we've got and I think that you know particularly when children are going through or families are going through diagnosis it's it's tough because the tools are pretty blunt mm. and, and and I think that what is becoming ever more evident is that as children uh, you know as we're seeing or kind of having a better conversation about neurodiversity, how much more nuanced and subtle mm. various kind of, you know, we can have lots of comorbidities, lots of kind of crossovers of, of conditions. And it's really important to be able to listen to the nuance um, of what those things, what's going on. So you can figure out exactly how you can kind of address it. Um, I think, uh, you know, a, there's a lot of, a lot of people, feel as though they're not heard a lot of children feel as though they're not heard a lot of parents feel as though they're not heard because yeah. of these blunt tools yeah wow great start there i like covered so many different aspects um so to, to you then james um talk us through sort of the the, the day in the life of, of a parent with a with a neurodiverse child tell us tell us a bit about that yeah so it's it's so variable. Uh, I think for us, certainly, it's about watching for triggers. So you become very self-aware as a parent of a neurodiverse child because you kind of get a sense of who you are, your parenting style, what you can do to try and avoid certain things. So you've got to be flexible. You've got to be able to adapt at any moment to any changing circumstances. So there's usually a backup plan in place. Uh, we have essentials. Uh, like food, drink, um, sensory aids, anything like that, just to try and ease um, ease the situation as challenges present themselves. Um, we have to negotiate, negotiate quite a lot. We have to collaborate together to try and find a solution. Um, but it's very difficult to plan anything as a family. So we often find if there's a, an event or a journey that we've got to undertake, uh, we know and we have in the past had to just turn around because it's just right. become too much. Okay. Um, sensory overload is a real key issue. And even if, if certainly for my son, even if he's really looking forward to something, sometimes it just becomes too much um, yeah. and we have to turn back. And that has a natural impact on any other children you've got. So yeah. I've got another two. And um, so everybody has to adapt, not just the parent. It's, it's, it's the child as well. And that can be a real challenge. I think for me, it's been maybe moving away from a traditional directive parenting approach. Um, I've had to try to enter my son's world. And by that, I suppose the best example I can give of that is he spends a considerable amount of time gaming, for example. You know, he's 11 years old, lots of children that age, they, they, they game, but a lot of parents would balk at the, the, the idea that their child would be spending a long time on on games and one thing that I had to come to terms with was that actually my feeling of what was appropriate for him is just not what's appropriate for him I had to appreciate that actually he had a level of control in his world this gaming world that he didn't have and he doesn't have in the real world yeah so he obtains that level of control um, that he doesn't have elsewhere and it was really it's really important for him that I take a step back and start thinking about actually is my parenting style actually causing him problems 
rather than kind of helping him. So that was a big, a big thing for him. Um, and one of the things that we found certainly is with the education system, the rigidity of it and this whole traditional directive style is not good. So he hasn't operated particularly well in, in school. So we've had to find, you know, a, a different way of working with the school. So one size fits all just doesn't work. Um, so we found that a bit of a challenge as well. Um, the, the whole idea of mainstream schools just it's just not not a possibility, unfortunately, for for our son. And that's again, it's another thing that we've had to come to terms with, and we've had to accept. Um, yeah. But it can be emotionally draining. There are highs and lows. Um, the biggest thing for me is almost it's almost a grieving process. Um, you know, we had a little boy um, who, as he's got older, has his challenges have become more evident. Um, he faces a world that expects him to conform. Um, and I worry for him every day that he's having to enter that world. Um, so I have to let go of my vision for him. And, you know, it's important. He is the master of his own experience. And um, by talking to him, communicating with him and trying to understand him, and it is an ongoing journey. Um, I'm definitely still not there yet. And I'm constantly making mistakes. Um, but, um, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a long journey a journey of self-discovery um, mm. and a journey of, of change, really, and, and accepting that you can't operate in the way that you'd expected and everything you know about parenting, for me anyway, was, was yeah. completely turned on its head. Cool. Thanks, James. Um, I appreciate I think you it's really interesting, isn't it? Sorry, Sorry I was going to say, sort of just listening to that, you know, sort of a lot of parents would say, well, it is difficult being a parent and, and you don't know, kind of, you will make mistakes and you will have to kind of readjust. I think that, the, you know, what we've, we've kind of, I've often sort of seen and kind of spoken to other parents of neurodiverse kids is that the intensity of that experience mm. is very, very different when you're in it. And particularly with kind of what it looks like from the outside, you know, having to kind of sort of speak to the neighbours for instance and apologise or kind of like just manage their expectations over the fact that I'm not abusing my son because he's having these massive meltdowns kind of in the morning and, and kind of you know sort of what is expected of children at different stages kind of in, in terms of kind of social behaviour may not be matched by kind of yeah. what you know is going on and particularly you know these children don't want to feel like this you know, they don't want to feel overwhelmed and kind of, kind of feel kind of uh, as though they're out of control. But um, yeah, it's 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 a it's very intense, and I think it's really important for people to kind of get that. You know, there is that kind of compassion fatigue that we experience as parents. It's not like we've got this endless reser reserves of kind of uh, superhuman strength to kind of just. Or as someone said to me once, um, oh, you just have to love them a bit harder. Um, you know, it's just kind of like, no, that doesn't help. And also saying sorry when they find out that your child's got a kind of condition, that doesn't help either. Um, you know, kind of, it's it's not about that. It's just you you, you work through it day to day. And you, as, a, as, a, as a parent, you just want the best for your kids. And, and that grieving process is about, well, you, it, you know, it's tough enough out there. You don't want them to have, you don't want them to have anything extra but that doesn't mean to say you're going to stop kind of wanting the best for them. Yeah, completely agree. And I think that that thing you pointed to, I'm kind of strangers with, you know, they've got the best of intentions. Um, but I remember being out in a supermarket and the, the most almighty meltdown was, was going on. And um, 
a parent of a child came over and said, well, you know, what we do with our child is we just engage them in the process um, of selecting the, the, the shopping and things like that. <laughs> just <You're> good. <laughs> good that's great. You know, it doesn't, doesn't always work. I think um, people do often have the best of intentions, but it's, 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 it's so difficult. And I think it's that element of um, almost validation. I think you, you often feel alone, very, very alone. Um, certainly I did particularly at the start when I didn't quite understand what was going on I felt very alone and it wasn't until you know a public meltdown occurred and then other members of the family saw it that it felt like finally people understand what it's like there's only so much you can explain um, and then it becomes completely evident and then um, that that was that was a big turning point for me anyway um, yeah it was, a good, it was a, good, a good point it's interesting, isn't it? Because our, our children typically can quite often mask quite well, quite mm. a lot of the time. Um, and that's where they're kind of holding down all of that, all of that kind of <clears throat> internal turmoil. And they're doing the very, very best to kind of um, present or kind of behave. I put that in inverted commas. Um, but then when they kind of are behind closed doors and they can relax, you know, the classic thing is that they would then kind of act out against their primary carers. And that's where the kind of, <clears throat> you know sort of where you experience a lot of um you might ex experience a lot of physical or kind of you know verbal kind of uh outbursts and, and kind of lash outs lashing outs and you know that's really tough to kind of manage because sort of said before it's a bit like being in a uh, an abusive relationship and one that you genuinely can't leave you know you're there to kind of give all the love that you can to this person and they're kind of uh really not demonstrating the kind of kind of re reaction that you would want from them um but it's it's just about kind of making sure that you kind of ride those out isn't it and kind of kind of keep keep moving forward and and keep the kind of the, the bigger picture in in in, in mind and it's like that that picture that i shared on, on linkedin the other um day um when um my son had kind of taken a, a chomp out my arm and it was kind of classic because the night before I'd been going we've had a really great few days <laughs> it'd been horrible kind of like for days you know a week and then we'd had some really great days I'm like oh this is great I've cracked it and then it's like <laughs> the next day it's like oh dear okay back to square one never mind um but you know you just have to kind of try and uh try and kind of see the see, see the bigger picture um yeah. they need to kind of keep going it's true. And I, I think I tend to hold something in my mind um, when my son had you know, a really big, big meltdown. He was exhausted after and he was emotional. You know, it was violence. Um, you know, then, then it was emotional. And one thing that he said was, I don't want to be like this. You know, and that's the thing that I always project in my mind when it gets really tough. And you talk about compassion fatigue and it's absolutely a real a real thing and something I've experienced on numerous occasions and you know it is difficult just as you said it is like like living you know you're living with an abusive person and, and you wouldn't put up with that with anybody else it's your child um and every day presents a challenge but I kind of hold that in my mind I, I keep replaying that moment in my mind when he was just you know completely overwhelmed and and got to the point where he just said I, I don't want to be like this and I know he doesn't yeah and I think that's always helped me get through that um, as well as the occasional bit of respite anyway. Um, <laughs> yeah. But it's, it's that moment of, you know, I know he doesn't want to be this way. You know, that's, and that's I, th I think there's a huge amount of awareness with the children that, that <clears throat> they are self-aware. And I think there is yeah. that kind of, that they understand kind of what's going on, but 
there is a sense of helplessness but they they do get I think they do get kind of the impact it has I don't think it's yeah. it, it's com they're completely not aware of kind of that I, I was talking to a friend of mine the other day and um her son is I think he's around about the same age as yours um and he's in a special school um and he was saying that he, he's he's autistic and he was saying he doesn't want to have autistic children but if he does he wants his mum to bring them up <laughs> so she was just like well I'm not sure about that love. <laughs> but thanks for the vote of confidence <laughs> yeah Oh well. So so listening to you both, and, and clearly there there'd be so many other parents in exactly the same situation as, as you both, but you, you both work as well, obviously, like like many others. Um how how and I'm, I'd I'd like to ask you, Emma, first on this one, how can how can employers and, and people you work with, how can they support you better? So, you know, how how, how do they ask the right questions? How do they make sure that you've got the right support and I'm thinking of even practical things like understanding you might be a bit late coming into work of a morning if, if the school run becomes a becomes challenging how does how, how can they do more it's a tricky one isn't it because a lot of people won't necessarily want to disclose what's going on because hmm. they feel they might be judged as a failing parent and they're also probably going to feel you know might feel kind of really rubbish about themselves in terms of kind of like you know if they've had a meltdown in the morning that's going to have a, an emotional impact on you yeah. but I think being able to ask the right questions about you know rather than saying can I help you or what do you need is like you know I'm noticing that you might be kind of feeling a bit sort of quiet or subdued is there something that you need support with um, what would you like to have happen? You know, it, what is there something that's going on that, you know, you don't have to tell me, but if there's stuff going on at home, do you need some additional support? And I think it's about just realizing that carrying all of that stuff is it does take a processing toll on people. They'll be more tired emotionally. They might be a little bit more fragile, particularly if they've had a rubbish day. Um, quite often when I'm working with with my clients who have kind of uh, sort of depression or kind of chronic fatigue kind of conditions I have um, a traffic light system in place for them so they can um, they can let people know without someone saying what's going on for you they can basically just indicate what color they're at that day in terms of their capacity how they're feeling um, you know it's an adapt adaptation from a kind of basically a kind of quite, uh, mental health crisis plan but I think it's a really useful tool because basically the employer can kind of say, okay, what color are you today? Red, amber, green. And that lets them know what that person might need in terms of support. It's already pre-negotiated. Today I've had X, Y, Z going on. What I need to have happen is I might not have to go into meetings. I might need you to ask me if I need to kind of prioritize my work today differently. I might need to leave early. Yeah. What will this mean? It just means I feel supported. I don't have to kind of justify my kind of working um, process. You know, having that kind of structure in place can be massively empowering. Um, for both sides so that you're managing expectations but also there's the flexibility and permission to have a life and kind of yeah. be able to manage that and still be productive in the workplace um, you know sort of not making assumptions about people's behavior not making assumptions about their capacity simply based on on the fact that they might be having a bit of a wobbly time you yeah. know um, yeah and it might be you know sort of it might be a consistent picture but sort of 
like all people who are in work, you want to be able to be productive and you want to contribute. It's not for because you want to kind of slack off, um, it, it, but it, there may be a different language or kind of mechanism to do that. That isn't necessarily about putting a, a flag out saying I'm having a rubbish day. It's just yeah. about, well, I just need some extra support today. Yes. Um, and is, is that something you've ever experienced, James, like that, that sort of supportive environment? Um, definitely. I, I think Emma touched on something really important there because it's, it's important to make sure that you're getting the right level of support at work, but equally there's this fear of judgment. Mm. Um, and I, I think it's, it's, it's a fear of, ju- of being judged as a parent, but also a fear of being judged because if you, if you say, look, you know, I've got um, a, a neurodiverse child, these are the challenges that it's presenting. It, it almost, again, it just kind of makes you um, appear um, as less capable or somehow less productive or or, or or things like that. I mean, my rule of thumb is that, you know, it's a personal choice to, to explain yeah. what the issue is, but in order to kind of open up the level of support, you almost do need to put yourself out there a little bit and just say, look, I do need some extra support here. And I think um, not waving a flag is a really important point, Emma. It's, it's not about sort of saying, look, you know, I'm, you know, I'm vulnerable. I've, you know, I've got additional challenges at home that I need support with. But it's about kind of just being nuanced, being flexible. You know, it's about. So, so for me, I definitely suffer with sleep deprivation. You know, my son really struggles to sleep. It's one of his one of his things. He, he, he really struggles to switch off at, at night, and that can impact. So I often feel exhausted in the morning. Mm. Um, but it doesn't make me any less productive I, I get through it with with coffee but I also get tons and tons of flexibility with my my employer so I can I can work later and that's not a problem and it's about being able to roll with the punches slightly um so as you said you know school's a problem getting them to school is always a challenge um and that means that sometimes you you're late to start work mm. um so you need that added level of flexibility and that adaptability to be able to just um be productive but not to write you off or not have that feeling of being written off because you've got additional challenges at home. I think that's the, the critical thing. So I think that's that's a key thing, but also understanding that there are additional demands and stressors. Um, that's 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 important. I, I, I think podcasts like this that just really explain what it's like because it's one thing saying it again, um, kind of whether it's to your employer or to your colleagues, but until people really genuinely understand the challenges, it goes beyond kind of parenting. It's, it's, it really does take its toll emotionally. It's really draining. So that's, yeah. that's quite important too. Um, yeah. So yeah, flexibility, adaptability, not being written off is really important. I think. Yeah. yeah. I think it's also important for, for parents to kind of, you know, sort of, you, you need to kind of be, kind of brave enough in a, in a sense or kind of feel that there's the and this is where employers can help is to kind of allow that conversation to have be had mm-hmm. um because you, you don't want to be seen as less capable but also be honest being honest and kind of clear about kind of managing expectations so that when you say that you're going to be able to do something that you're able to do it um so that you're then you're able to kind of build up enough trust so that when you say kind of like I really have to do kind of like just go then it's like yeah that's fine because they know that you'll kind of be 
on point when you are on point you're able to kind of be at your best um so i think sort of it's it's it, it's a it's a two-way street isn't it so it's like employers have got to open up that conversation and allow that to happen but yeah. parents have got to be able to kind of go no i need to set boundaries and i need to be honest and kind of clear about what's going on for me so that people can help me what what's occurring to me here as well is so there's a balance between you know it's it's, it's my information as a <clears throat> as a parent and, and I should be able to tell who I want to tell on my terms but but my experience is these things tend to come out um you know through a through a disciplinary process for instance if somebody's been late a number of times and and, and then you get into a, a formal conversation, which in itself is horrible and, and you know, will be very uh, an anxious time for the other person. And then they'll say, oh, and by the way, here's the challenge. And you kind of go, oh, wow. I mean, how could we how could we have sort of done something that have wouldn't have put you through this process and given you the opportunity to engage with us on this earlier? But people are so private and they didn't want to. They didn't want to share it. So how do we, how do we create that opportunity without forcing people to disclose something? How do we create the environment where you can access the extra support without, if you're private and it's your choice to reveal something or not, without saying and here's the reason. How do how do we make that happen? One of the one of the things that I quite often do as part of a neurodiverse client kind of self-advocating is that they have like this kind of one-page profiler and the phrase that I get people to use is what works best for me is this means that I can and what they do is they detail everything in terms of kind of to do with communication working environment um, you know all of that stuff and I think as a um, being specific say for instance kind of rather than saying um, people have to disclose stuff and say well you know as we go back into kind of hybrid working for instance for employers to say what's going to work well for you in terms of working hours you know opening up that opportunity to say well you know do you have any additional kind of uh, kind of needs as regards to kind of family life now or, or things like mm-hmm. that um so maybe that's what a way of opening it up so rather than some saying you know you have to tell us what's going on yes um, yeah and it's a great opportunity at the moment isn't it because it's this is this is a you know wonderful time to be having those sorts of conversations because people's lives have changed so much and and you hear so much about people being tired after going to the office and and experiencing the commute that they haven't done for the last two years so so there'll be so many more people that will want to engage in that conversation now that that previously wouldn't have wouldn't have had a um, any any challenges um so so just thinking about um you know where where we go next then and and, and I guess I'm thinking about the sort of giving the the final word for for the for the children involved here um and, and Emma if you don't mind sort of you know how how can we how can we help them understand more about themselves so the you know the, the point you raised James around you know your son saying I don't want to be I mean that must have been a you know, a, a really upsetting moment for you, but also a, as you say, an anchor point for when he is going through his his his, his moments that you can kind of go, wow, just remember that. You know, he's he's not wanting to experience this. He's he's just in a hyper state of anxiety. Um, 
how can we help them understand themselves better, Emma? I think it's a really interesting kind of point in time, sort of the whole conversation about neurodiversity and, and being able to, you know, sort of actually get children to understand on a kind of neurophysical level, what's happening for them to have a context for why they might be having sensory kind of overload, what they can do to manage themselves. You know, every single child that I've spoken to hates having meltdowns without a kind of ex exception. And I think sort of having the opportunity to understand what's going on for them so that they can then um, understand means that there'll be significantly less mental I think mental health kind of conditions or issues with not understanding kind of not having kind of diagnosis you know if we have much more open conversations with our children about okay I understand that kind of that might have been triggered you might have felt overwhelmed but or you might not have been what you might have said in your head but didn't come out loud so I need you to say it again so I can understand that sort of thing I think in terms of the capacity or the potential for our children to be able to self-advocate and be able to find a place for themselves within society that isn't about being judged about their condition and about them being able to prove their capacity I think is is, is actually really positive um, I think sort of neurodiversity is being started to see as as kind of the kind of the the rich resource of new ideas mm. all the young people I've spoken to have like I've got great ideas we just need to be able to speak what those ideas are, are you know so we can come up with the solutions for the future mm. and I think there is definitely a kind of a movement to um to allow that I think education needs to kind of be more flexible to allow more vocational kind of creative kind of ways of, of learning again just to let those children you know shine really I, yeah. I mean there's a, a big conversation that we we could be having about ECH, EHCPs which is kind of really kind of I think restricts a lot of families and a lot of children but I think overall um, the neurodiverse community is, is is really kind of getting behind the next generation and that feels really positive. Yeah it does and, and James from from your point of view um, any any tips that, that you could sort of share with parents that are just learning about their children now, having you know gone through um, quite an experience already, and, and as you said, you're still you're still learning today. Yeah, no, hundred percent. It is a constant learning experience. Um, sometimes, sometimes I feel like I've got it, um, and something just clicks, and then you you take another step back, um, and you've got to cope with those 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 times, and that's okay. But I think the first step for me was to kind of. And this is a personal choice again about whether you want to do it, but it's, it's to seek a diagnosis for your child. Um, you know, not everybody wants to do that. And, and again, that is 100% personal choice, but for us, it's really important um, because it opens doors to support that you wouldn't mm. normally get. And I think beyond that, you can seek support. Um, I mean, we've, we've joined a, a network for people that understand, and that's incredibly important in being able to do that because I think poor support or no support whatsoever can really impact your own mental health and that doesn't put you in any shape for um, raising a, a neurodiverse child. Um, so, you know, like I said before, it's really easy to become isolated. And I think groups through social media groups and things like that, we, we do, you know, PDA network, um, it's really important. You know, it's, it's everybody's going through it every day. Again, just makes you feel less isolated. Yeah. Um, I think 
compassion fatigue we've already spoken about and I think that's so important it's a it's a common thing and it's something that I've struggled with and I think it's important to seek support for it to get respite if you can if you're lucky enough to have a level of support around you that just gives you kind of a day off or an evening off or whatever it might be I think that's really important but also be kind to yourself because actually compassion fatigue albeit your own child um again we've already touched on how it can be quite violent how it can feel like a one-way street when it comes to compassion um and empathy and we're not an inexhaustive well of 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 empathy even for our own children and it's okay to feel that um and again my technique is always to kind of remember when you know just understand he he doesn't want to be that way and that's really important and to make sure that you're constantly reassuring yourself that you know this child is i'm an advocate for my child he's the he's the, the the arbiter of his experience only he experiences his life the way that he does and i think there's sometimes a it's difficult to find a niche you know that, that is so there are so many shades of gray when it comes to neurodiversity as, as emma's already touched on and it won't fit in a box and again that's okay you don't always have to have the answers um but yeah just um seek support seek respite where you can if you're lucky enough to have that and um just remember they, they you know for me it's about remembering he doesn't want to be that way and I'm there to support him. So. Yeah, definitely. Um, thank you, James. I think that's a, a good point to, to leave it for this week. Some really good points you both raised today. I'm, I'm sure, as I said at the beginning, um, that there'll be people listening to this that will be going through it themselves now and not understanding it. And, and, and you would have both shone a light on um, you know, what, what they're experiencing and, and, and hopefully they'll, they'll, they'll look to to gain some support and, and pick up on the tips that you've shared today um a really important topic but not least you know the experience you're both going through from from a, a, a career perspective as well and how difficult that is leading a career um and, and being in a workplace um when when, you, when you're going through this this sort of challenge at home um so thank you both for for giving up your time today and sharing your, your personal stories um that that's that's never an easy thing so for me that's that is the epitome of leadership you know sharing sharing those personal stories and, and sharing your journey so that others can can follow uh follow behind you so thank you both for for being brave today and sharing your your stories and, and being leaders on this topic so um as always um thank you for choosing to listen to to what the future if you've enjoyed this episode then please hit the subscribe button it absolutely helps us out um also um if you're looking for a mentor or want to become a mentor um then just sort of uh, go to the go to the website www.futureleadersmentoring.com and tap the join us button and we will be back in touch so until next week thank you both and thank you for everybody for listening and we will hear from you soon thank you bye thank you bye-bye